0: I'm Kosha. And I'm Shay And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shay and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered.
1: We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really
0: the seed for this series. I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields.
1: And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right?
2: Hi, my name is Nikki. Um, I go by she, her pronouns and I am speaking.
1: Excellent. You wanna say that again as a statement instead of a question mark?
2: (laughs) Yes. I can, I can phrase that again.
1: And I am. Speaking. Wait, wait, can you t-
2: tell, tell Nikki the story? Oh, There was
1: one person. It's <laughs> like so our first season. You know, it's a, worth
0: listening to. I was, realized that. He was
1: that so sweet. He, very, he's not, a little nervous. he was nervous. He could not remember the name of our podcast. It was the first season. So no one really knew it. And he was like, and am I speaking? And I was like, <laughs> you are speaking. You want to say it as a statement. And then we were like, uh, so then he said it again, but then Shilshi and I were laughing. And then the third time he said it wrong again. And so he had to say it four times and I left them all in because I'm like, this is so good. We're just at the beginning. He was like yeah. our 10th, like not, maybe not even 10th guest. It was like our seventh or no, eighth guest. Yeah, so probably not it was just tenth, so awesome. Yeah. Okay. So definitely say it as a statement.
2: Okay. You want me to start from the no, beginning? just say that. Okay. Okay. And I am speaking. There you
1: go. There we go.
2: Hi, Nikki. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: And uh, we really appreciate you joining us to talk about your experience in mental health, pr- working with patients, um, you know, and and touching on previous seasons, um, some of the challenges that women face when they are in a field that's largely been dominated by men. Um, and so what it's been like to move from being a nurse to a nurse practitioner, and it's, we'll touch on a bunch of other stuff along the way, obviously. Okay. How do you know Kosha? Let's start there. That's a nice, easy, hopefully easy entry point. <laughs>
1: That's pretty easy.
2: <laughs> um. Well, Kosha comes to my job and talks about some new medicines that um, come out into the field and have been very, very helpful in our patient population. So, and she's so... Uh, Wonderful, wonderful woman. Lots of personality. We love her very much.
0: She does have a lot of personality, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) So she didn't sound quite as excited about that personality as you, but yeah, so I, you know, but the listeners know I I work for a company that um, promotes long acne injections for people with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. And it's just a really marginalized group and people who just have very serious mental illness. And so, uh, the place where Nikki is a nurse practitioner has a lot of those SMI patients, a lot of those seriously mentally ill patients. So we talk a lot, actually, she comes to my programs and, um, she's just a huge advocate for the patients. Also.
0: That's amazing. Thank you. What kind? what is the range of patients that you see at your location? Obviously, if Kosha goes there, you're seeing people with Schizophrenia. What other sort of serious illnesses, mental health conditions and illnesses do you see?
2: Um, we have schizophrenia. We have schizoaffective. We have a lot of substance um, use disorders. Those seem to be the two bigger sort of um, mental health issues that we deal with. Um, but we do take pediatrics all the way through. We do geriatrics. We don't really advertise it. It's more like a case- by-case basis because that's a very particular specialty but the adults I see primarily all the adults um and we do intellectually delayed so like group homes I worked with um and then we do like I said substance use a lot of serious mental illness like schizophrenia bipolar um disorder with mania get so effective so kind of a big range wow
0: yeah for our listeners and let me just be clear for me too (laughs) (laughs) What is the difference, or could you define for us schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder? I think those two might be the most, you know, they sound the same kind of. So that would be great to have that out. And then, certainly, I want to talk about also the difference between schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder.
2: Oh, yes. So, schizoaffective is kind of a combination um, of symptoms of schizophrenia and a mood disorder
1: like bipolar
2: yes yes like bipolar and they can occur at at the same time or different times and schizophrenia is exactly what people think schizophrenia is that comes with the hallucinations the delusions the paranoia and interestingly enough people with schizoaffective disorder usually have a better prognosis in the long term than people with just straight with straight schizophrenia so it's always been interesting to me about that but those are the two major differences between both
1: so so to be clear a lot of times schizoaffective is a diagnosis of elimination so people think right like you have bipolar because you have this mania and and depression and then they're and then they're like well that's not the meds aren't helping or it's not enough Mm. to explain all of the symptoms and so they do they kind of like cut away at all of the other um diagnoses until they get to schizoaffective schizo- so usually that's like a later right
2: yeah that's I mean and that's usually how at least in my practice you know like I'm still fairly new so um but that's usually how I get through to that diagnosis and, you know, I have my issues with diagnosis because, you know, the first time I see a patient, I have to diagnose somebody. So I'm not getting an, an entire clinical picture. It's more just like tits and, you know, bits that I can get and extrapolate from them at that moment. And sometimes I, you know, it's hard to get collateral information. So it's basically just trying to, to figure it out at that moment and kind of see what sticks. Yeah,
0: I mean, I can imagine it's like unless someone comes in and you're like, oh, this is like everything in my textbook, right, right. Unless say, you know, they're sh- basically like, oh, check, 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 check. It, things get muddied, and you're like, well, I have like fifteen minutes or twenty minutes or whatever the sort of standard amount of time for a for a patient appointment is, and you're like, I don't. Like, there's so many other questions I would want to ask about your life and what's happened to you and blah, all these kinds of things that to be able to say like, here, you have this major mental health issue and now you have to be on these meds that are pretty intense. They work for that condition, but they're pretty intense. It's like, that's a lot.
2: It, it is a lot. And it's um, you know, and I like to tell people that mental health is a spectrum. It's not dichotomous. Like you're not, Nobody fits into that perfect little box. And the more we compartmentalize people, I think the more disservice we do to our patients. And so when we understand that mental health exists on the spectrum overall, I feel like it's better treatment because some people don't fit right away into one diagnosis. And then after a few months of working with them or a year, you start to find things out. They start to open up more. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, now it makes sense. So it's an interesting field for sure.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think part of the issue also. So, uh, Nikki is an outpatient, right? And a lot of patients don't come to her until they've been through the inpatient. And inpatient can be very traumatic, also, right? So, yes. if you think about someone who's having a, a psychotic break, they need to be there, like the two options are to go someone's having a psychotic break your two options are you get taken to jail or you get taken to the hospital like that's how far they are right Nikki so so they're off
0: well let's go I would like to go back a minute and say what does it look like when someone has a psychotic break like the two of you are in this in this moment right the two of you know so much about this and I'm representing the generally informed but not uh not particularly well informed listener what does it look like when someone has a psychotic break
2: i think it's different for everyone and unfortunately i tend to err on the side that the stigma surrounding mental health i think most people wait till they're almost at such a pathologic demonstration of psychosis that they don't have a choice. That's, you know, and that's usually what I'm talking about. Like the police are now bringing you in
1: because they're being aggressive. Like what are, what are some of those things that cause someone symptoms? Yeah. Like what are some of the things that a mom is like, I have no choice. I have to take you in
2: typically what we see with that. So I worked inpatient for a long time. And so what we'll see usually, especially in kids, I mean, just think about with your own children, like what would it take for you to voluntarily call an ambulance to come pick up your kid, go to the hospital, and then admit him into a place where you don't know people. So typically what we see in that is a lot of violence, aggression at home, property destruction. And typically what I see a lot with parents is they put up with a lot more. And it's interesting because before I even became a nurse, I used to work as an MHA in residential with kids.
1: As a what? What's an MHA? An MHA, like a Mm -hmm. mental health associate. MHA, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And so we would see oftentimes younger boys coming in for aggression uh, because parents put up with male aggression a lot less than they do with female. And so kids will come in um, because they're aggressive, they're destroying property, and they get sent to the hospital, and then they come to us for adults, it's kind of a mixture. I see a lot of really three types where they break into the psychosis. It's usually either severe aggression, like they're um, harming other people, they're attacking people randomly, um, property destruction, severe suicidality, or just really bizarre behavior, like some of the stuff you see on TV that we collectively kind of sometimes laugh about, but In reality, it's not something that we should be, um, but this is like the situations where like, you know, people are walking around the neighborhood naked Mm -hmm. and like pulling garbage out and stuff like that. So that's typically what we see, but there are signs and symptoms that happen well before that. And what ends up happening is the stigma is so heavy that people often will brush it under the rug and say like, oh, they'll be okay oh, I can fix this on my own that I don't ask for help until it becomes so big that now we're in this situation. It's a, And it's really nobody's fault because I think as a society as a whole, we've always been taught, deal with your own problems. And also that family dynamic, like I don't want to let my family down. I don't want my, I don't want people to think I can't take care of my kid. I don't want people to think yeah. that I don't care about this. So, the, I mean, there's like really a lot that goes into all of that.
0: Speaking for my myself, our uh, younger child, our son was diagnosed on the autism spectrum right before he was three. You know, that for us, that was like it was, you know, it was a, a real big, you know, splash of cold water in the face, but also an opportunity to get him the support and the services he needed. But I heard I had a number of people say to me, oh, I would just have waited and until it gets better. And so I think, you know, just from the feedback I get, sometimes it's stigma and sometimes it's really wishful thinking. Maybe they'll grow out of it. Maybe it's a phase, right? And you just try so hard. It is absolutely try so hard. Like maybe they need to cut down the sugar. Maybe they, you know, they shouldn't eat gluten, like any number of things. And then it's like, you're so desperate for it to be not that thing that you just push it off until you, until you have eliminated every other possible option or like you said it ramps up so quickly that you're like you know i'm afraid for my life or my other kids lives and we have got to do something about this now
1: wow right so it gets to the point where like you're you're either putting yourself or someone else in serious harm's way and so if if the police are called like there are some informed police forces would you say nikki where like they will take you to the hospital, but there are a lot of people in jail because of psychosis and being called. And like, then you get dumped in jail. How are the police handling this at this point? Like where you are?
2: So we've been fortunate where I am, our police and the hospital have a very close relationship. Like our hospitals are kind of in a cluster there's a bunch of hospitals in an area so the ceos and our like business development everybody's worked really hard with fostering a good relationship with them
1: and you're not in the city like i think that yes. when when city cops are so overwhelmed with other types of gang violence and things like that they're just they're like checking the boxes whereas yeah. where you are in more of the suburbs you have a more uh resourced place force.
2: yes there's definitely a more resource area just in terms of because of the amount of professionals in the area but also socioeconomic values like we can invest more resources into that and so many areas don't have that so we do have a good relationship and i have seen wonderful interactions with them in our area um and i could speak really only to that because it's the only place I've seen. Um, but I do know, and we've watched news, like unfortunately there's a lot of times when they don't. And I think that's where we fall short in mental health is being able to provide that support because something like 50% of people in the U.S. population will be diagnosed with some sort of mental health um, in their lifetime and one in five every year are diagnosed with some sort of mental health disorder. Like the CDC puts those out. I see that statistic every day. Like every, everything I open up, it always talks about that. And so I think when something is that prevalent and there's a lot of people misinformed about it, it just creates a lot of scenarios that can have really negative outcomes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Can you walk us through someone goes into the inpatient right? Like that they're, they're taken there by their caregiver, right? Their family member. This person is, um, psychotic and aggressive and, you know, refusing their meds. That's a, that's a big part of it. Can you take, take us through the steps of what, cause you were on the inpatient unit for longer than you're in the outpatient unit so yes. far, right? Yes. I mean, how long were you in the inpatient, the psych inpatient nurse? Not that you were five. in psych inpatient yeah. <laughs> five years. <laughs> five years so tell us like walk us through what happens someone comes into the front doors of the inpatient what happens to that patient
2: so you come in I mean I could go through the whole process from beginning to end
0: yeah that'd be great yeah
2: okay so if you are let's say if you express suicidal ideation like you know your friend expressed suicidal ideation and you're like I think you need to go get help I'm really concerned about you they go via the ambulance to the hospital. The first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna be assessed. And there's two forms they get. There's a petition and a certification. A petition is a legal document that basically anybody with a license, it was my understanding, anybody with a license um, or police officers, firefighters, social workers, nurses, anybody can petition somebody to go be assessed at a hospital. Once they go to a hospital, I believe it's nurse practitioners, doctors, DOs, and psychologists, clinical psychologists can fill out, um, and therapists um, like LCSWs can fill out something called a certification. So you get assessed if they believe you meet one of the three criteria to be impatient. That means you're a harm to yourself, you're a harm to other people, or you're incapable of caring for yourself. So that looks like somebody who's like laying in bed, not using the bathroom, not eating, not drinking, something like that. If you meet one of those three criteria, they fill out something called a certification. And that certification then means that you are now admitted into a psychiatric facility under the care of a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner or PA, whoever it may be, it's a provider. You are then sent to a hospital. Once you're in the hospital, um, You go through the admissions process. They'll go through all the legal paperwork and they'll talk to you about signing in voluntary versus involuntary. Then you go up to the unit, a nurse does an assessment, the doctor gets called, we put in orders based on whatever level of care you're at. So like if you're in a substance abuse unit, if you're um, in a general psych, so we, there's different standing orders for different units and in different hospitals. where so we put those in, we evaluate your meds. You have to be seen by a provider within 24 hours of admission. Once you're seen within 24 hours of admission, our policy is we have up to 72 hours for a therapist to see you.
1: This is where it does kind of branch because if, if the person is docile or uh, uh, like kind of going along with things or is there for, let's say, suicidal ideation, Then all of this is happening. If someone is coming in aggressive and violent, irritable, then you have to sedate them. Typically, they're
2: sedated before they come to us by the ER because they need to be safe for transport. Now, I can't speak for every hospital, but for us, we want to make sure that they're safe for transport because if they're aggressive trying to get out of the restraints. If they're physically, I don't want to put any EMTs at risk and I don't want the patient to be at risk too, you know, fighting with people in an ambulance. I can't imagine that's going to go well. So <laughs> that would, that would not go well. So I want to make sure that they're safe. And when they come in, if they're sedated, when they come in, um, we do our best to try to wake them up because I want to assess them. I need to assess them as a nurse. Um, I want to make sure that they're breathing. I want to make sure, that they're okay. I want to make sure there's no injuries. And then if they're still pretty sedated and we can't get them away, then we watch them. We have a nurse or an MHA sit by them and watch them continuously until they kind of wake up. And sometimes depending on how long they've been there, if there was any substances used, what sort of, what sort of sedation medications they use will determine how long. I've had patients sleep for 24 hours straight.
1: So Sheila, she talked recently about like how, how totally in the stone ages we are with women's health and the same thing goes for mental health. So what, like, as far as we've come with mental health med, like just science, how far science has come, one of the names for um, the sedation cocktail that they use for patients who are psychotic is called the B-52s. Yep. What is that, Nikki? What is B-52? I've heard B-52s, the
2: Holy Trinity, the Ativan train, all of them. And that's Benadryl-50, Haldol-5, and Ativan-2.
1: Wow. It's
2: given IM. There is a big push to kind of move away from that.
1: What you're trying to do there, essentially, is just snow the patient. Yeah. It's just
2: snow. So let's,
0: without jargon. Oh, sorry. Your t- IM means? Intra- Intramuscular intramuscular so like in your arm or in your butt or whatever like
1: deep into the deep into the muscle
0: yeah muscle and then snow means to knock them out
2: yeah to sedate
0: them okay
2: yeah there's there's a lot of cocktails that have come out they use ketamine they use versed
0: this is but this is the path for someone who is cooperative let's say or at least not combative the B fifty two is not sure, but my question here is this: is the well, it assumes that someone's like, okay, I'm, I'm okay to stay here for treatment. I'm, what if someone's like, get me the hell out of here! I don't want to be here. Um, I refuse. That happens all the time.
2: So they're involuntary then, and there's a different set of standards for involuntary. We get that a lot. People will tell us, like, I want to sign out AMA. There is no AMA in psych.
1: That's against medical orders or against medical advice.
2: Yeah, against medical advice. There is no AMA in psych. You cannot sign out against medical advice. You can't take your kids out AMA either. If your child is admitted to a psych facility with a petition, you cannot sign out AMA. You cannot sign out against medical advice.
0: So the only way you can get released is if a doctor or the sort of the person in charge of your care side says you are okay to go. Yeah.
1: In all of these psych hospitals that I go to, at least everything is locked. And like, I have gotten, I'm not kidding. I didn't have someone with me with keys and I got stuck in the stairwell for like 10 minutes where I'm like, excuse me. And I'm trying to call. Yeah. I mean, people can't like just leave.
2: No, people can't. There, I mean, people have. There are stop gaps. People have attempted to run. People have attempted to try to run out of different, you know, areas in the hospital. But, like you said, they're locked. Everywhere is locked. Um, it's very hard. Now that's like at a standalone facility. When you get to like medical hospitals. That's where you get a lot of like elopement from psych patients if they try to leave. It's very hard to do that in different facilities. That makes sense. Sure.
1: Yeah, where you're just like in the ER and you're just admitted to the floor or something, that you have like people with heart problems in the same place. So that makes it hard to do. So they can't lock it.
2: Yeah. Every everything is locked. Matters. Everything's locked.
0: Yeah. It's I mean, I can imagine, right? It's if someone gets away from you while they're out of their Room, they can only go so far. Maybe they can only go to the end of the hallway yeah. or they can run down one set of stairs. And then you're like,
1: What you gonna do now, buddy? Yeah, <laughs> right,
0: right, right,
1: right. How'd that work for you?
0: <laughs> right. That's wow, that's really tough. I think it also, you know, and I understand the why behind this. Um, but I've heard comparisons between psych facilities like this and jails. Yep. And it's not that different. I mean, it's the, the setup isn't that different. The intention is quite different, but this like, you're in a locked place. And then if you get out of that locked place, basically there's a whole bunch of staff and you can only go so far. Right.
2: And it is, it very much is. And I have a lot of people who have been in and out of prisons say the same thing. Like, this is like prison. Um and they get really frustrated and antsy because you know a lot of hospitals have adopted this zero suicide initiative so like a lot of things are taking off the units because they pose potential ligature risks um or harm risks.
1: I did a uh, an in service for some uh, some injection staff so I was there educating them about you know the what I'm what I was promoting and the patient type and stuff like that and I had my computer with like a projector and there were no plugs there were no electrical outlets on the floor like anywhere that a patient could be because it it had this like potential to yourself. yeah potential to harm yourself
2: we we are actively trying to do that because what some people will do they're so creative is they'll take like a like a paper clip or they'll find something And then they jam it into the um, electrical outlets. And then if they can smuggle in cigarettes, they'll take the cigarette and put it in there. And then they light their cigarette.
1: So they're not trying to harm themselves. They're just trying to get their nicotine fixed. Yeah,
2: they're trying to get their nicotine. I mean, we've had some people just like randomly start fires on their garbage can because they thought it would be fun. But that's like a whole other discussion.
0: Yeah. Well.
2: Yeah. like, And it's hard for them because we don't have TVs in the room. They don't have access to their cell phones like the phones that we have are in the wall they can't walk around with it so like people can hear their phone conversations we don't have like I think the biggest thing for people is like the the food and the drinks you know like at home you can just get up and go get yourself a juice and go sit down and watch tv like you can't do that there everything is monitored and kept track of and so for them they're like it's just very reminiscent of prison and we do our best to try to offset that but it's it's very hard I absolutely
0: can imagine that. So that's inpatient, but you're not in that world anymore. You're not on that side of it. Now you're an outpatient. So what precipitated the shift from inpatient to outpatient? Where you're like, I really need an outlet?
2: No, they um
0: <laughs> that did not land. Oh
1: no, I get it. No, no, no. I was thinking like <laughs> did not land. for your like emotions or something, but I, get- I got it. No, that. I was like, need, I need I need to plug <laughs> something need, in the I wall? need to charge my goddamn phone, is what I need to do. It took
2: me a second to catch it and I did. Right when she was like, ah, oh, I got it. Both <laughs> of us took so a I minute. That. Yeah. When I became a nurse practitioner, they asked because we had lost some providers and outpatients, they asked if I would come and cover outpatient and I've kind of been there ever since. Yeah.
0: So what what precipitated then or what and what was the thing that you're like, oh now I want to become a nurse practitioner? What motivated you to jump that level?
2: Oh, uh-huh. that's a story.
0: That's why we're here. <laughs>
2: So I, when I went back to nursing school, I was a late life nurse. I studied anthropology and archeology span first. I wanted to be an anthropologist that did not pan out. And then I kind of stumbled into psych. And when I became a nurse, I was like, I never want to work in psych. I want to be a labor and delivery nurse. That's what I want to do. Never worked in labor and delivery in my life. I have been a psych nurse my entire career. And after my daughter was born, I realized like I cannot sustain Working on the floor as a psych nurse for as long as I was, and I felt like I could do more.
1: Do you think uh, you mean like financially or mentally that you were going to? Oh, okay.
2: Both. I felt both. A doctor had told me I was talking to him because I contemplated going to med school. I had gotten all my materials ready and I was getting ready to, you know, send out my application. And I talked to him, and his response was, well, what do you want to specialize in? And I was like, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, I want to be a surgeon, but really nobody wants me to be a surgeon because I'm very clumsy and like not coordinated, but cool. So (laughs) I was like, well, I want to stay in psych, you know? And he told me, he's like, don't go to med school for that. He's like, go and become a nurse practitioner. You're good at what you do. You're knowledgeable and you would do phenomenal. And, you know, we talked about the finances between going to med school and how long that would take and kind of what my goals were, because I don't want to open up a practice, there is a difference between an MD and a nurse practitioner. And I didn't want to open up my own practice, I wasn't doing all that I kind of liked the schooling and the philosophy behind being a nurse, I just wanted a little bit more like responsibility, more knowledge, more ability to apply all the skills that I gained and so that's sort of how I came into that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, what's it been like working on the outpatient side then?
1: Super awesome because she gets to see me all the time. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, she's like oh yeah. On my day. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> Coach is the highlight of my day. I love when she comes and
1: visits.
0: I did. Really.
2: Okay. <laughs> Check yes. <laughs> I think the hardest part in outpatient is the relationships that you build with your patients because inpatient, and I hate to use this term, treat and street, because that's not what we do. But just to kind of reiterate, like I treat you because we're in acute stabilization. I'm not, we're not long-term. This isn't a residential. So you come in, you're in acute state, you're, you're out of your baseline. And so we just try to bring you back. An outpatient, I, I see these long-term effects. And I think the hardest part for me an outpatient has been dealing with a lot of long-term effects that a lot of people go through with external situations. Gun violence, sexual assault, sex trafficking, poverty. It's 10 hours a day I get kind of just bombarded with, 10 hours a day of dealing with it. Yeah,
1: You know, that's, it's, it's interesting that you say, you know, like, oh, coach is the highlight of our day, which is very sweet of you to say. But what I will say is part of our, like what, what we talk about is trying to go into all of these offices with a smile because it might be the only smile you see that day. Yes. Like it, as cheesy as that sounds, that like me not coming in needing something from you and being in like an acute or like in a, in a rough mental state or having got a fight with my, like, I'm not bringing that stuff. I might've just gotten a fight with my mom but I'm not bringing that. That's not why I'm there to talk to you. And it might be the only smile you see all day.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I think the analogy it sounds like is, you know in the sort of standard med- in the body medical practice um, not the mental medical practice is like Inpatient is an emergency room. You go, you know, the person is bleeding or they've been in a car crash or whatever it is, you get them in there and you stabilize them and you, you know, you figure out what's wrong, figure out what they need. And then they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They either, they go onto a floor in the hospital or they go back, you know, whatever, then they're, you know, they get to go home or whatever it is. Right. And outpatient is the primary care. Those are the people you see them over and over again, and you're working with them on a chronic condition, but you also have to deal with all of the other things in their life that affect this chronic condition, you know, and that's similar, you know, our brother is actually, he's a hospitalist and that's sort of like, in probably that's probably the closest we could say, which is like, you're dealing with chronic conditions and you end up dealing with like, so you're. Your a you know a1c is up. Why is that? Oh, because this and that. And I didn't have enough money to go grocery shopping, so I had to go to the corner store, and all I could afford was chips and soda, and you know, like all of that comes to bear. The same way that you know, well, yeah, I live in a neighborhood with gang violence, and my best friend was shot two weeks ago, and I'm you know I'm not eating well, and you know there's abuse going on in my house.
2: Right. And it's really hard as a provider because our mental health system right now, I mean, our healthcare system in general isn't doing what it it needs to be doing. And so I have a lot of people without these resources, like it's six months to a year wait for people on Medicaid, Medicare to get therapy. Six months to a year. It's, you know, it's resources for food, it's resources for housing, it's resources for jobs, it's domestic violence resources. It's, you know, I have males who are homeless and sleeping on park benches because there's not enough homeless shelters. Like pre-COVID, they were shutting down and COVID completely eliminated a lot of programs. And so I can't really, who wants to come in and listen to me talk about grounding and breathing techniques when you have anxiety, because you're sleeping on a park bench and you can't eat. Like, right. Well, and so my
0: work prior to what I'm doing now, is I did work for a homelessness agency and they they uh, used a housing first model, which is like the first thing you do is you get people in a house. We don't deal with their drug and alcohol use. We don't deal with their mental health. We don't, we put them in a house. Right. And I, you're speaking exactly to that, which is how can somebody deal with the nuanced part of mental health when they are like, I don't know if I'm gonna get beaten up in the middle of the night, right? Like, right. Uh, I need a safe place to start the work of dealing with my health or dealing with my substance use issues or, you know, whatever number of things people might be dealing with. And you also point out just, you know, this, the real challenge for people who have these kinds of serious mental health disorders is that they often go to jail. And once you go to jail, it's hard to get a house. Mm
1: -hmm. And so then, you,
0: you know, then you're like, cow surfing or you're sleeping you know in benches, or maybe you have a car and then you're you know you're in your car and then you're Mm self-medicating because it's super stressful and then it's just a cycle
2: yeah it's called downstreaming and it's like downstreaming yeah it's this constant where like you have a mental illness it puts you at higher risk for dying earlier from chronic morbid diseases like um, heart failure or congestive heart diseases, diabetes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you don't have access. I mean, I have patients who haven't had access to a primary caregiver in 20 years. Wow. And so you don't have that. So you're dealing with health. And then, you know, this mental illness that you have is preventing you from holding any sort of stable jobs. And now you don't have a house or you have unstable housing, you have poor food, you're not sleeping. And it's just like the cycle that goes back and forth and it keeps pulling you down the socioeconomic ladder to the point where like, where do you go from here? Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Again, if we talk about the need for early intervention, it gets that bad and then family is like, I can't do this anymore. They get, you know, uh, what's the word? Compassion fatigue or they go bankrupt trying to like bailing their kid out of, jail and so you or they just like the patient is just at a point where they actually are socially withdrawing and so they leave or whatever and so my frustration comes from the complacency of the psych world and you get this a lot with like older mds who have been in there there's a lot of compassion fatigue right and complacency right. but there was a patient who still had a job and was getting like more and more restless and, and aggressive and like definitely having some breakthrough psychosis. I was essentially fighting with the doctor. I was like, you need to get this patient on a long acting injections. They're not taking their meds. And he was like, oh, well, you know, he's br- like, essentially like he's brushing his teeth every day and he's still going to work. So we're gonna stick here. Didn't want to rock the boat. The next time I came in, the patient has had lost their job and I almost lost it on this doctor, which I'm not supposed to do because I'm like, that will get me kicked out of the office. But I'm like, so now this patient doesn't have a job, doesn't have insurance anymore, which would have covered the med that would have gotten, you know, it's like, there is this, there is a an impasse in terms of what do we do to best help these patients? Even though the science is there, the, the, bedside, man, I don't, what is not, what is not happening, Nikki? What, where's the gap there?
2: I think it has to do with, and again, I can only speak from where I see, and I've been fortunate enough. I have pretty progressive doctors who are very supportive and aware, but I think it has to do with the lack of education and mental health overall. You spoke a lot about early intervention. And I know we talked about your son who was diagnosed at three which is incredible. And it's, and it's super amazing that you were able to do that. But I feel like a lot of parents don't have that education to be able to stop and say, Hey, he's not meeting his milestones, or this is not behavior that is expected at this point. So I would like to see like a developmental pediatrician. That's somebody who can diagnose early stages of autism.
0: And we would have missed it. Truthfully, we would have missed it if it hadn't been Well, our preschool providers, we have another child who is gender presenting as a girl and is a blah, blah, blah. It's super talkative and super social and, you know, just uh, everything, everywhere, all the time um, type of kid. And so then we had the second one and we thought, well, he's just a little different. He's a boy. Like no one's going to be as talkative as that kid, you know, (laughs) the first kid. And so we just assumed it was personality differences, right? Temperament and personality differences. And it wasn't until he was about two and a half, maybe two and a quarter that the preschool came, you know, preschool providers had a meeting with, with us and said, we're concerned. He's not talking as much as he should be. He's not engaging with other kids as as we would expect at this age. You know, I, I'm so grateful for those people. And I actually said, I'm like, to that, you know, after the whole conversation was over, I was like, this must have been really hard for you to talk to me. And she's uh, our preschool, you know, person said, yeah, you can't believe the number of people who rage at me because I'm telling something I'm basic. They're hearing there's something wrong with their kid. And I I was like, I have nothing but gratitude for them. Even recently, I was thinking about how fortunate we were to have those you know those providers could see in so many kids but also felt like i need to say this like it's in our moral and ethical duty and and to say it even though it's scary but i wouldn't have known to i wouldn't have thought to take him to a pd a developmental pediatrician until he was maybe four which he would have lost a good chunk of support
2: yeah a lot of pe- people don't really catch till about three or four, so it was wonderful that you were able to get that support. But I think for a lot of people too, even when they hear that, it's really hard for them to understand like what this disease and spectrum looks like, and it's fear. It's fear because it's lack of knowledge. And one of my favorite sayings when I used to work on the pediatric unit, because that's what I did for a very long time, I was, I was a peds nurse. I used to tell them grieve the ideas that you used to have. Like we all have dreams for our kids. I want my kid to grow up. I want her to be happy. I want her to have A, B, C, and D. And sometimes when this happens, like it throws a wrench in our plans and we're like, you know, it's okay. You can you can be angry, you can be frustrated and you can take that time to grieve those dreams you have. But in the end, I think what's important as parents is we need to meet our kids where they're at.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need
2: to meet them where they're at and- the more expectations we keep putting on them like that, I think we're setting the bar so high that we just inevitably set them up to fail every time. That's a good point. I think that's one of the biggest things in pediatric psychiatry I used to see all the time with parents is I would have kids come in who are on the spectrum. I would have kids who come in with severe ADHD and the parents would be like, can you just give them a pill and they'll be fine? I'm like, that's not how this works. And let's work on scaffolding the environment or creating an environment and understanding what your kids capability is and appreciate and love them where they're at and foster where they're at so that you're not making them feel inferior, You're not setting them up for failure. We need to be respectful and honor where they're at. And I think that's how we make progress and psychiatry. I'm going to step off my soapbox for that, but I have a lot of soapbox issues for that.
0: No, and that's, I, I don't, well, first of all, this is a place to have a soapbox moment.
1: That, that was, that was the other option for the title of our podcast was soapbox moments. So it's, it's okay. I like
0: it. (laughs) Um, But I, I mean, I agree with you. And one of the most help, probably the most helpful thing I got, not to talk too much about the, you know, diagnosis process, but I imagine it's very even though it's a different, you know, issue that we're dealing with in terms of like what's going on, this is very important for parents to learn, like, because it is a cold water in the face moment where you're like, oh my God, this wasn't what I thought was going to happen here. And then you got to, you should, and I'm going to sp- should that one for sure, is um, deal with reality, but also to realize that's still the same kid. mm mm-hmm. The diagnosis doesn't change who they are. It tells you something about w- what's going on with them, who they are, what's going on with them. They're still the same kid, and you know. I think one of that one of the ABA um, therapists who was helping him was like, he's still the same kid. It's just your perception of what's going on is different now, but there's nothing different about him. You know, it's the same really anywhere with any diagnosis. You're still the same. yeah. You just have a different understanding of what might, you know, sort of what's happening. But if your kid gets diagnosed with extreme ADHD, they're still the same kid, right? Just, you know more about what's going on.
1: And by ignoring it, <clears throat> you're actually causing so much more harm than- Yes. It's, it's not like everything, if you ignore it, it's gonna be neutral, right? And everything's just gonna keep being the same you're actually going to cause them to tumble. It must be hard. And I, you know, I have an eight-year-old and, and at this point she doesn't have any neurodiversity or, or any mental health, you know, issues going on. But I, I can imagine, it, it's hard to admit that like you're, something's going on with your kid or your brother or your mom. But at the same time, the more we shed light on these things and talk about them, is when that's the only way to break down the stigma it's the only way it is
2: and the way in the language that we use you know i try to be very mindful you know going through class going through you know you hear we talk about when we say like oh that kid's autistic like no that child has autism there's a big difference oh he's bipolar no he has bipolar disorder we
1: say that it like it we don't call people schizophrenic We say like they are coping with their schizophrenia or something. And the other thing, Shilshi and I actually at the beginning of this season, um, I said stuff like when people go, oh my God, I'm just so OCD right now. No, no, no. You just want things in a particular order. Right. Or I just, I feel so schizophrenic. No, you just have a lot of things going on. And that, that doesn't, and you're being pulled in lots of directions. That does not mean you have paranoid delusions. Like, all of these symptoms and and the other thing is like how we just we're like she's just crazy he's he's crazy I have I realized when I started working in mental health that I say that a lot and I'm like it's one thing to be like that situation is crazy right when you're not when you're talking about something that's not a human but I have really tried to pull back and and catch myself when I say like even if I say I feel crazy Like, I don't want to say those things or I'm just crazy. Like, stop using those kind of words because they invalidate and dismiss what people are actually going through.
2: Yeah, like when people are like, say she's bipolar, people don't really understand how devastating bipolar disorder can be. And so when you constantly diminish it, like on one hand, yeah, it's opening up the conversation, but at the other hand, like it really diminishes all of, the hardships that they do have to endure and so it makes it that much harder for them to reach out for support and for family to understand like bipolar disorder and depression and anxiety are not just diseases of being lazy i hear that all the time parents and um adults and siblings will be like she's not depressed she just needs to get out and work you know or she needs to go for a run she needs to take these vitamins. Um, she needs to go to church, et cetera, et cetera. And that's because they like diminish it so much. You know, they use it in everyday language that I don't think people really understand until they've actually worked in the field or have seen how devastating the effects have. Um that I don't think that'll change anytime soon right now, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: That's I mean, that's really pretty heavy, right? It's it's very Downstreamy, perfect storm ish, right? Where it's there's already stigma that's out there. And then, and people are feeling anxious about the diagnosis, right? That makes people anxious about seeking a diagnosis or getting a diagnosis. Um, and then there's this layer of, you know, di- diminishing and dismissing certain conditions um, because we use them uh, very thoughtlessly in, in everyday language. Um, but then there's also this, once a person does have a diagnosis, then there's this sense of like, well, they just need to X, Y, and Z like, or, or even, you know, it's, they just want someone to get better. They don't want, and I can understand, you don't want to see your loved one, you know, struggle with something. Um, But there's like you said earlier, it's like, can you just make them better? Can you just give them a pill? Can you just, there's gotta be an easy solution that doesn't require a lot of scaffolding to help this person live a a meaningful life.
2: Yeah. And I think that's hard because we live in a society where everything is instantaneous, instant gratification. Like my blood pressure is high. I can take this pill and immediately I know that my blood pressure is going to drop. I can measure that right now as a nurse you have high blood pressure, I can give you a med through an IV and immediately watch your blood pressure lower. I can't do that with psychiatric meds. I can't do that. When you come in and you're depressed, I can't give you something that's going to make you feel better tomorrow. It takes time. And I think that's the hard part for people. Psychiatry isn't something that you can measure today or tomorrow. We measure in weeks, sometimes months. And it's not just medications, it's therapy, it's family support, it's resources, it's all these other small things. We don't really fit into this big picture. It's just hard for, I think, a lot of people to kind of get it together. Another
0: question, a question I have for you is, you know, you just made the analogy or you just made the comparison to blood pressure meds. And in a way, you get a medicine for your body and your body responds without you having to control it, it's sort of like just does it, right? I imagine you tell me I'm wrong because I may have, but that part of this part of what makes psychiatric, you know, improvement so difficult is because you actually have control over the situation to some extent through your own cognition and your own perception of the world, right? So, um, and this is, I don't wanna caveat, this is not victim blaming at all, but people who have depression can do things that will help them manage their depression or they can do things that will help them sort of fall, maybe not further into depression, but it's not gonna help them. They can do things that are helpful and not helpful. Um, and that's absolutely true of your, you know, your body too, but in a sense of like, you can't think your way around. I'm not going to let this blood pressure medication work on me. I'm just gonna, I mean, what you can do is take it or not take it, but you can't, you, can't, you don't have a lot of control over how you perceive the work. you know, what your blood pressure medication does as you get up and then you go to work or whatever. And you can choose to eat or not eat. And that has a, you can choose to go to work or not go to work. You can choose to turn on the lights or not turn on the lights. There are so much nuance. Like maybe that's what I'm getting at here. It's that there's so much nuance about what um, affects our mental health that someone could be taking medication and not seeing the kind of results I would want because it's so new, both internally and externally. But maybe I'm wrong about that.
2: No, no, I I agree. I agree. There's a lot of that too and it's also um I feel like the consequences of not maybe being compliant with medications and I know Coach can speak to this too are a lot more um severe and immediate with something like high blood pressure meds um or diabetes meds. And so you feel it right away. Whereas some patients will tell me like, um, I took my meds for three weeks and I didn't feel anything and then they stopped taking it and they're like, but I feel terrible. And there's like this mist like this disconnect. And I was like, you started to feel terrible after you stopped taking your meds.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, you're like, is, how is, do you not see the difference? Yeah. <laughs>
2: And that's because it was insidious to make them feel better. It wasn't like they took this pill today, tomorrow. They were no longer depressed. It was like over a month or two. And then they're like, well, I don't think it was doing anything. And that's because I think people expect when you take like an antidepressant, like, oh, I'm going to take it today and I'm never going to be depressed. I'm going to be this happy individual. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be like all those people on Instagram I see who are smiling and working out and doing all this. I'm going to be great. And when that doesn't happen, they're like, well, I feel like it doesn't work. And so they stop taking it and then they get worse. And they're like, well, your pill made me worse. Like, well, not really.
1: I think what we're getting at is like the subjectivity of mental health. And like, if you're less depressed, that's really hard to measure, right? Like I feel better, but I'm still struggling with these things. And I have, I have severe anxiety. And when I take my meds, I have like a low rumbling anxiety. I don't have huge breakthrough, but I still have knots in my stomach. I'm still having anxiety, but it's it's way, way less and way, way more manageable. I would compare mental health meds to like pain meds that people want the pain to go away. But a lot of times it is just making it more manageable, but that all is very subjective. Like if you've had if you've had pain, chronic pain, and we know people who have chronic pain for 20 years. And then even if a doctor makes it like slightly better, you're like, oh my God, you're, you have changed my life. But if your expectation is that the pain is just going to go away, that may not happen. And then suddenly the subjectivity of it comes into play. And the same thing, like, you know, we've all seen that. A lot of people have seen that movie, um, that is a wonderful life. Uh, that people have seen that one too. But <laughs> a beautiful mind, a beautiful mind. Thank you. Yeah. And at the end of that movie, he still has the hallucinations, but he just has more distance. So if you're expecting complete symptomatic remission, which means like you want all of your symptoms to go away, that's going to be different than a symptomatic response, which is the meds are helping but they're not making you like, just completely, quote, clean from symptoms. And so the subjectivity hurts in this, in this, in this field.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And typically, I don't even see, you know, working in outpatient. That's one of the harder things in outpatient too, is like inpatient, you see an immediate improvement. Yeah, you see like some measurable improvement because they have to be safe enough to be discharged whereas an outpatient it's like I go months and months and I was like you come in and you're really flat and apathetic and I'm like are you sure you're okay and they're like yeah I'm fine this is the greatest I've ever been and you're like "Mm, okay and so you just like you trust that and then all of a sudden like they come in one day and you're like so you seem to be baseline and like, no, I'm really terrible. And I'm like, oh, my Lord.
1: Okay. Like, <laughs> like what we okay, do you know what that yeah. word means? Because you're confusing me.
2: Yeah. And it's like, it's really hard because, you know, it, to try to like decipher, like, is this something pathological related to the disease process? Like, are they depressed because the medication isn't effective anymore? Maybe I need to increase the dose. Maybe there needs to be adjunctive therapy. Or are they depressed because there's some situational event going on that contributes to that? And a lot of times they don't really share that. And so it's kind of like digging through a whole bunch of stuff um, to try to figure out and understand, like, where is this coming from? And that's the hardest part in in that, because, I mean, I have to do that. I would be a poor provider if I just added meds and didn't try to figure out what the the root cause of that is.
0: Yeah. So these are, that's what's hard about outpatient. What's awesome about outpatient? Like, where have you been like, this is amazing. I'm really glad I'm doing this every, like those, those things that those experiences or those people where you're like, that makes, yeah, that makes it easier to keep going.
2: Is seeing, so I see when I worked inpatient, I had a lot of people with serious mental illness, right? And outpatient, I see those people and I get to see them not in their inpatient state. So like I'll have somebody who comes in who I've known is just purely psychotic, not talking, not engaging, nothing like oftentimes aggressive. And then an outpatient, it's like they come in and like, hey, Miss Nikki. And they're like giving me high fives. They're talking about their jobs. You know, they share things. And I'm like, wow, this is really nice to see you in another perspective as opposed to just you know, in the state where you know you were in,
1: Canada. You almost, were in yeah. a lot of yeah. Yeah. Can you tell my favorite story? Tell my favorite story.
2: <laughs> we have a patient who has been up until for all the years I've known him working inpatient. I thought he was completely mute. He refused to speak. He would kind of just stand in the corner. Had been aggressive in the past,
1: but not so much now. Like very unpredictable. Definitely responding internally. You thought he was mute. I would like to point, re-point that out. You thought he could not speak. He was mute. Yeah,
2: I thought he could not speak. You know, that's like a, that's a symptom of the disease process. And then an outpatient saw him one day and I was like, wow, he said, hello. He had a whole sentence to me and I was like, oh, you can talk. And it was just amazing. And it almost made, it, it really did make me tear up it was like, this is why we do what we do, because this is a completely different person. You know, and we oftentimes will see that, you know, patients that come in and then step out and will tell me, you know, like when you saw me inpatient, that wasn't who I was. This is who I am now, you know? Um, And you get to see the the ups and downs and you get to share with some of the stuff, like finishing college, um, getting their first job, getting married you know, having their first girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever. And those are nice to be able to share with those. And so you build those relationships. And so while the relationship sometimes can be a downfall, because you do become attached to your patients, you become invested in them, that's what you do. You know, it can be a a disadvantage, because that's a lot to be invested for, you know, I see a lot of patients. But one of the biggest, pros to what I do is being invested in that and getting to know them and see them in different stages in their life and because I've built that relationship I feel like I have a lot closer and more authentic relationship with them where they can come in and tell me things you know they can come in and tell me like I know you're treating me for substance use but I had a a slip up and it's like and it's and it's authentic in the way that they know I understand that's the part of the process and there's no judgment here like my job is to advocate for you my job is to work with you to bring you to where you want to be and is not to judge you it is not to tell you what you did wrong it is not to to castrate you i think that's the word um castrate thank you
1: it's not to like uh, that's not the right word cuz castrate that, is yeah not castrate you mean chastise yeah chastise thank you uh, is that could also you. be
2: castrate it could it's
0: certainly not your job to castrate maybe <laughs>
2: But it's it's not my job to do that either way <laughs> yes right
1: <laughs> maybe mentally castrate we don't want to do that mentally, either yeah
2: right. we don't want to do that either but it's it's a lot of fun you know to have them come in and it's nice to to know that we have that relationship where i can tell them like it's okay and i i tell that all the time i'm like you're human like we all make mistakes it's okay and i always tell them i was like i'm proud of you where you have come and how hard you work and you know this doesn't change how amazing you are how hard you work and all this stuff like let's just talk about it let's figure out what we can do from here
0: yeah yeah. It's it's kind of amazing how people think like oh I should I should once I you know once I get this figured out like I can never slip up and I was like you know life is really hard life is hard for people who are like in positions of privilege, and they have their physical health, and they have their mental health, and you know all of this stuff, and they're not, you know, struggling to meet their basic needs. It's still hard. So if you just add in all of these layers, which makes it harder and harder and harder. Of course, you're gonna slip up. Like, if, you know, you can't be. Per- There's not enough energy and willpower in the world to do everything, quote unquote, right when you have so many things working against you, it's just so difficult.
2: My favorite thing to tell them all the time is they're like, oh, I did this and I messed up. I was like, okay. And I always, and I don't know how, but this is a great screen protector because I've dropped this phone probably a million times. But I always make this point and I put my phone and I drop it on the floor. And they look at me, I was like, I dropped my phone on the floor. I said, so I made a mistake. I said, should I pick this up and then go smash it underneath my car tire? And they're like, <laughs> uh, no, they're like, that would be stupid. And I was like, okay, so you make one mistake. You're just going to throw it all away and be like, you know, F it. I'm going to go do whatever I want. Like,
0: yeah, that is a really good one. Um, just cause it is very like, so you're going to throw it all away just because, just because of a mistake or many mistakes. I mean, God knows how many times I've dropped my phone. Right. So
2: Like it's the worst. Like we're here.
0: Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't asked you or we haven't talked about?
2: I think I would, the one thing I would tell people is just read a little bit and try to seek empathy. You know, I don't think we really understand what anybody's truly going through. And I feel like if we're a little bit more empathetic and understanding of one another and the struggles that it is to be a human on this planet, on this earth, at this time in general, I think it goes a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, I was going to ask you the second to last question we always ask is what advice would you have for someone who is struggling or is loves someone who's struggling and you gave us really you started that with really great sort of general advice to any to all people, which is like learn about it, learn about what challenges, you know, learn about mental health issues and don't call um, uh, multiple personality disorder schizophrenia or whatever it is, right? Don't and don't use the words lightly and have empathy. Um, but what would you say to someone who is is like either I think there's something wrong with the person i love or i think there's something going on with like i'm not right in this moment
2: i tell this to people all the time two things number one nami is a really great resource
1: which is n-a-m-i national alliance for mental
2: Mental illness. illness for
1: mental illness national alliance for mental illness
2: and they have great resources And you can look up, they have stuff like walk-in centers um, that you can go and talk to people there. And people there are trained. um, They're wonderful, wonderful people. Um, They're very compassionate, super empathetic, very understanding and supportive. Um, A lot of them have drop-in centers. A lot of them have toll-free numbers you can call. Um, And the last, and even though I don't want to really, you know, as a nurse, we always say like, don't cloud the emergency rooms with... This is one of those cases where that is not true. Go, go to the emergency room. If you feel like at any point you are a danger to yourself, you don't feel safe or you don't feel safe with somebody else. You can, a lot of um, police agencies have like a, a mental health crisis line you can call. Like, so if you call the police station or 911, sometimes they'll refer you to crisis intervention teams. But if somebody you love And and I'm going to say this as bluntly as possible. If somebody you love is making you feel unsafe where your life or your children's life or your siblings, where anybody's life is in danger, call the police, call the emergency line, um, because the last thing you want to do is wait until something happens. Call um, and have the the situation de-escalated as best as you can, because at the end of the day, you can't help anybody if you're not here. And if you feel like you yourself aren't going to be safe, take yourself to the nearest emergency room Um, or call the police, too, um, because they will for yourself. Yeah, for yourself. You can call the police and tell them that. And I've had patients do that where they call and say, I don't feel safe and I feel like I'm going to hurt myself. And they will come and they will take you to the, the hospital. The hospitals will take you if you walk in standalone psych facilities can take you um, any hospital will take you and standalone psych facilities you can walk in and be assessed so reach out and get help um, the national suicide line there's out there I think they have a text now it's like uh, actually I could probably look it up but it's a text number you can text and they'll talk to you yeah there's just a you know when in doubt the hospital is probably the best route for that because you
1: know we want everybody to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, that's I think that's really important because um at the end of the day what we're trying to do is break down the stigma and so the moment we are you know there's a, have you seen Dear Evan Hansen or heard heard Dear Evan Hansen the show? There's a line and I, and I said it in my own episode where she goes, um, there's a place where you don't have to be alone. And every time that you reach out or every time that you call out, you're a little less alone. So it's one of those things where the more we talk about it, the more we call ourselves out and everybody around us, people will be safer. We don't have enough room in mental health facilities. They don't start closing down. We actually build them. We make them better. We make them better resource because the need is there
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely
1: the suicide um hotline you can call you just text is 988 that's right that's the newer that's the new one right yeah absolutely because it used to be like 1-800 and a bunch of yeah something like that they made it that was just 988
2: that's it and you can do text message phone call and i think you can even do it through like a computer chat
1: oh Oh, wow that's
2: awesome that's good to know
1: well, thank you so much for all of that information. Um, I The last question is a little bit of fun, but uh, we talk about family Act and how you know, it really connects us and it talks really toward like shared stories. So can you give us some examples of your family Act either at home or uh, like at work? because you I know you work with a very tight, group of people like you guys are very close so what are some of the words phrases um you know made up words that you use that only mean something to you and not anybody else um <laughs> I when you when we had talked about
2: that and you sent that info to me I was like cracking up because there's so many words and even now I don't even know if they're real words or not and so when you asked me that question, I was like, I don't even know, because sometimes I'll say stuff and my husband will be like, what is that? And <laughs> I'll say stuff like, so growing up where I grew up, I grew up in Cicero and we used to say skeevy all the time, shkivi. like really gross, like oh. in like super gross, like skeevy. And I would just throw it out there like skeevy. And he's like, what does that even mean? Nobody knows what that means. It's just like a, a
1: small group of us. And he's, I was like, it's like a word. So the thing is, it doesn't matter if it's a real word or not. The whole idea is that it means something to you, which makes it act. And I mean, my daughter has words every day that
2: she says her new one is spindolonio. Spindolonio. And So I Yeah. What is it? Oh. <laughs> so she asked me where babies came from one day. Uh-huh. And I tried to give her like very, very correct anatomical and medical explanation. It's sperm. That's what she remembers sperm is. So every time she says it, it just like my husband and I, it's just like a joke. Now Now we just refer it to anything that she's spindolonial. Anything <laughs> she says that's out of it. I was like, oh, that's a spindolonial. And he's like, yeah. So let's say like, that's
1: ours. Oh, that's good. That is amazing. Oh my God. I will say, um, that one of the things I love, I love kids speak. My daughter decided that she doesn't like ricotta cheese in lasagna. And so she's like, I don't like this. It's fermata. And I was like, it's what? And she's like, it's fermata. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. She, and so now we call ricotta cheese, fermata cheese. It's just it's just funny because I'm like, it doesn't even matter when you start calling it ricotta cheese. We're still going to call it formata.
0: Yeah. Well, and my very favorite one is she was reading a book. Oh, no. <laughs> the civil rights protests and misread Montgomery, Alabama as montagramy. 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 But the best part about it is Kosha Koisha was like, do you mean Montgomery? I was like, where, where was they protest you mean, you mean Montgomery and she goes yeah but I'm gonna call I just call it Montagra like just like
2: <laughs> blew it off like
0: yeah yeah other people call it that but I call it
1: this now
2: That's like the eucalyptus story oh my god Angelica. okay so
1: I uh, this doesn't really fit and I can cut it out but you need to tell she the story <laughs>
2: <laughs> so my daughter goes to a uh private school the priests came out and we're like what is the letter of the week and they said you. And so they were telling the kids, okay, well give me a hint to something that starts with the letter U. So one of the kids is like, it's a horse and it has like this pointy thing and he's like a unicorn. So my sassy little girl raises her hand and she's like, I got one. And she goes, my mommy has one and it's stinky. And <laughs> I was like, what, what is she talking about? And I'm like ready to die. And she's like, yeah. And it's really big. And it's like bushy. And she's like, it's stinky. And daddy gets mad at her about everything. And I was like, and she sticks (laughs) it in my faces. And I was like, what is she talking about? And you had like a brilliant analogy, like where I melted into the cement. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I was like, I got to switch schools now. (laughs) I go, baby, what are you talking about? And she just so proudly, she goes, it's a uterus. And I was like, what a uterus and I was like oh my god stinky uterus (laughs) I was like what are you talking about and I was like baby and I like go over and I was like what are you talking about nobody knew how to react because she said it so and she confidently yeah yeah Yeah. she's like it's a uterus mom she's like you know that thing and I was like I was like eucalyptus it's a eucalyptus (laughs) eucalyptus and she's you're wrong
0: on two counts kiddo
2: (laughs) sorry I was like Eucalyptus, sweetheart, eucalyptus, and she's like, "Yeah, same thing." Why is everybody laughing? I was
1: like, "Oh, <laughs> I was like, not the same thing." Because but first okay. of all, it's not the same thing. Secondly, it doesn't start with a U, so we could just yeah, put that exactly. <laughs> You're wrong, and we we all laughed because I was like, "Good,
2: mommy doesn't have a stinky uterus," and put it in <laughs> pieces.
1: Also, oh you just God. go hashtag I'm out. Yeah, yeah,
2: I'm out. Oh my gosh, that's
1: awesome. Oh, Nikki, you have been so Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think what, what you talked about is so important. And it seems so, like when we work in mental health, it seems so basic. Like this is, we're just going over like basic concepts in serious mental health, but nobody knows about it. Like it's, this stuff is just really vital to get out there. So certainly,
0: unless you have- dealt with it or you know someone who's really dealt with it and will they'll talk to you or like a parent or a loved one right where you've seen it all a lot of what happens in the mental health world in in this psych psychiatric world is is largely out of view of most people you know, they don't, they don't know what happens in inpatient, how, how you do inpatient stuff or what happens, um, you know, how you do outpatient treatment of, of serious mental health disorders. Um, and so thanks for talking us through that and shining a light on it and and really advocating for people to, you know, to use the resources available if they are worried.
2: I appreciate it.
0: So thank you again. Bye. Bye. Thank
1: you.
2: It was nice meeting you.